Hello, my name is Peter Dunn from the Communications Office at the University of Warwick, and I'm here today with Professor Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's just received her honorary degree of Doctor of Laws from the University. We're delighted to have her here, and congratulations on your degree. Thank you. It's a, a particular pleasure to have an honorary degree from Warwick. I have uh, family ties uh, to Warwick in that my uncle actually boarded here at the Warwick School uh, as a very young boy during World War II. Uh, so Warwick offered protection for my family before the university was created. Nevertheless, it's, it's a particular pleasure to be back. Excellent. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was a great local collection. Um, you obviously, you've had a distinguished career and continue to have a distinguished career in professor at Princeton, you know, at Harvard. Uh, you've been the uh, a policy advisor for the U.S. State Department. Indeed, the first woman to hold a position of director of policy planning for the U.S. State Department. Uh, contributing editor of The Atlantic, an author of a, or editor of a, of a significant number of books, and uh, two of which I want to briefly touch on today, if only because they're the only two that I have had time to read entirely. Uh, and uh, those two books are, that I have in front of me at the minute are uh, The Idea That Is America, uh, Keeping Faith with Our Values in a Dangerous World, which talks about the idea of America and how it is and how it's evolving. And then uh, your more recent book, A New World Order, looking at global governance and the issues there. So if I could just ask you a few questions about the ideas you developed in there, uh, starting with the idea that it is America. Uh, in there you talk about the American dream being harmed by the increasing levels of inequality, which is not something which is unique to America. All countries are facing increased inequality. But you said particularly harming the American dream, and I, I guess I put you in the opposite camp to the, the Anne Rand after uh, shrugged objectivist school where it says this sort of thing's good. <laughs> well, you know, America is founded on the idea that you can get as far as hard work and good fortune will carry you. And it's a rags-to-riches idea. We love the stories of you know, people who come whose father was a janitor and her mother was you know, a tailor, and they work their way up and they become a captain of industry. Uh, right now, social mobility is greater in the European Union than it is in the United States, which is something many Americans simply don't want to believe. But you have a higher chance of rising in life if you live in the European Union than in the U.S., and we have become an increasingly stratified society so that the 1%, the very wealthy, really live in a different world uh, than everybody else. They, they don't fly commercial aircraft. They fly, fly private planes. Uh, they send their children to completely different schools or they, or they, they have private tutors. Uh, they have gated communities where they have their own security. Uh, so that, that, you know, in, in, in Britain, uh, obviously there, there's inequality as well, but take one example of the health system. With the National Health Service, you can have a ward that has everybody from, a, you know, a, a barrister to a plumber to somebody off the street. In the United States, that kind of mixing is less and less. And that's staggering considering most of the folk that left Europe originally were going to America <laughs> for the American dream. So, so what do you think could be done to fix that, to return to your vision of the American dream then? Well, the most important thing is to fix our education system. Without very strong, affordable education, you cannot advance. And most of the great American stories really come from 
people who had plenty of brains and were able to work their way up in a, in a meritocracy. Right now, where you live determines how well you're educated because we have a system where public schools depend on local taxes without any transfer. And the result is that for millions and millions of Americans, they can't get the basic tools they need to advance. So the single most important thing we have to do is to, to really overhaul our education system. I mentioned a moment ago, of course, that uh, many people left Europe to go to America, and the first thing they saw often was the Statue of Liberty. And you say that's an image particularly you're proud of in the idea it is America. But you expressed some concern at that time that the image of America, when you were writing that book, was no longer the Statue of Liberty, but was the photography coming out of Abu Ghraib, out of the Afghanistan prison. Have things got better since that book, or what do you think the visual image of America is today? I think things have gotten significantly better since 2004, which when Abu Ghraib uh, happened and when I really felt impelled to write about the idea that is America and to write about a culture of, of self-criticism that, that would allow us to correct what at that point were, were really terrible mistakes. Today, in, in 2013, after almost four and a half years of President Obama, I think things are quite different. Uh, the image of an African-American man as President of the United States was a powerful one around the world. It said, you know, we can actually live our values. We're committed to equality, and we still have plenty of racism in our society, but we've dismantled it enough so that Barack Obama could become our president. So I think we are in a better place on the world stage. I would still say that the war in Iraq, various other uses of force, and also the, the collapse of the American economy have taken their toll. You've just mentioned Iraq, and of course we just referred to Afghanistan. One of the issues you raise in your book about the problems of the image of America is that Americans as a whole, you suggest, like a happy ending. Now, that's, that's the thing they strive for, possibly as part of the American dream. But happy endings don't tend to, be, to work well with what we've just discussed in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Do you think America has found a view which helps it cope with that lack of happy ending sometimes? <laughs> Well, I think America has learned some hard lessons, although we've we've always had to learn hard lessons. One of the arguments I make in the book is that there's nothing special about Americans. We're not better than other people. What what has worked for us is a system that constantly self-corrects so that when we make the mistakes and, and there's a gap between what we say and what we do, as there is everywhere, we have a system that allows our press, our people, to hold us uh, to account. And I would say that we will not be sending large numbers of troops into countries again anytime soon with the idea of trying to rebuild another society. We will be defending ourselves, we will be helping as we did in Libya, and as I think we could in Syria and elsewhere, but the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan are, you know, countries have to build their own democracy. You can provide a level of assistance and, and maybe a certain period of security, but you cannot do it by force of arms, nor even with billions and billions of dollars. That leads me quite nicely to my next question in terms of country building. Uh, that you, you introduced two concepts in the book about what you, you know, how you think could be used to assist countries move towards democracy or in, in country reconstruction. You talk about ordered liberty 
and you talk about countries uh, following a par index being above par and that they need to be popular, their governments need to be popular, accountable and rights regarding. Are those two concepts still those that you hold to or have they developed in any way since you wrote the book? I think they are very important concepts. Uh, the, the idea of ordered liberty or of popular, accountable and rights regarding government, there's just two ways of getting at the same thing, are, are highly relevant if you think about the Middle East right now and you think about what, what's happening in Egypt, for instance, where you have a popularly elected government, or you had one with Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, that's important. That's a popular government. Uh, that's a freely elected government. It did not rule in a rights-regarding way. It did not provide constitutional democracy or ordered liberty. It had the. It took the view that you know we have the majority, so now what we says we say happens, and we can change the system to favor us. Now, all politicians do that to some extent, but. Uh, I think it, it's very important to say to to another country, if you're not the United States but the world, free and fair elections is part one of ordered liberty, but it's only part one. And respect for minorities, inclusion of opposition views, uh, and uh, respect for individual rights are equally important. So if you are elected but then choose to govern in a way that is not uh, accountable and rights regarding, you're not legitimate. And looking at US foreign policy more generally in the book, you harken back to what you seem to see as a golden age of what you call a good neighbor policy, <laughs> where the US adopted this line in, in South and Central America, and it seemed to go particularly well at that time. How, where's a good neighbor policy now, today? Is it is it working? Are we returning to it? Uh, would South and Central America recognize that in U.S. foreign policy today? Well, I'm not sure South and Central America would e probably even agree with my original <laughs> <laughs> characterization <laughs> in the sense that, you know, you had a lot of countries that were routinely invaded by the United States and the Monroe Doctrine in the 19th century essentially said to the rest of the world, this is our hemisphere, keep out. Uh, so relations have often been prickly, but what I will say is uh, you know, the United States is becoming increasingly Hispanic. By yeah. 2050, the uh, Hispanics will be the single largest ethnic group in the United States, larger than Caucasians. And we, over the, this century, you're going to see increasing north-south integration in our hemisphere. That is true because of population flows. You know, we were a country created by flows across the Atlantic. Then you have the Pacific. Well, now it's increasingly north-south, mm. and that's going to make an enormous mark uh, on our population and our politics. But it's also true from energy. The hemisphere will become increasingly self-sufficient in energy terms and in manufacturing and in industrial terms generally. So, um, you know, we may be hoping that they're good neighbors to us <laughs> as much as we're trying to be good neighbors to them. You don't hear very much about uh, North-South Central American relations, but under the surface, that's where an awful lot of change is happening. Yeah. And it wasn't so much um, Monroe was involved, I think, if I remember your book, but it was what came next. Was it the Roosevelt Corollary? The Roosevelt, yes. You, that was the real problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you where, what, what that was? Yeah, well, the, the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine was effectively, you know, we, we, we invaded Cuba. We, <laughs> we established it as a protectorate. I mean, we, we really did. There's a period there 
in the middle of the of the 20th century where it was our backyard and when we didn't like governments we simply changed them and john f kennedy when he was talking about the good neighbor policy was trying to establish a different a very different, different model view. yeah yeah okay to move on to a new world order uh the key concept there seems to be at, at the start the these frightened approach to global governance what you call the governance dilemma uh, so global is essential, yet somehow global governance is also dangerous. Yeah. Uh, is that something you still hold to today? Is something that particularly Americans are concerned about, or is it a global problem? I think it's a global problem. I mean, we we essentially have problems that are global in scope and scale. So if you just think about climate change or global pandemics or global criminal networks, anything from terrorist networks to drugs to money laundering, arms trafficking, these are global problems. But we cannot establish a global government. That is a government on too big a scale to ever be accountable or really meaningfully representative. So. If you think about the evolution of England uh, to the United Kingdom or of the United States, you know, you have local government and then provincial government of some kind and then national government, but national government's small enough that it can both exercise authority and still be accountable. Nobody wants to see a global government that we pay taxes to. So then the dilemma is, well, okay, but how do you get the authority that you need to solve the problems, which are global in scale, when you can't have an actual government that, that takes taxes and, and uses force? So that's a, that is, I think, still the central dilemma or simply problem of our times when you, if you think of us as global citizens. We need to work together. We don't have a government to make us work together. We have many differences. We all pursue our self-interest. And meantime, it's like the tragedy of the commons all over again. You suggest two concepts that might create this, uh, deal with this problem and create a global governance that, that would work rather than being a single state. Uh, you take one system from the states, which is checks and balances. And interestingly, you reference subsidiarity, for which you say is a European thing, which which we think is mostly a British thing. We think the Brits <laughs> like subsidiarity. We like keeping our own laws. We think the Europeans want to take all of our <laughs> take, take control. But there's an interesting concept of British stroke European concept of subsidiarity and the checks and balances. Can, can these work together in, what, in your model? Well, it's an imperfect model, certainly. But but the idea is. Yes, you, you you try to solve every problem at the lowest level possible. That's subsidiarity. I think that is uh, a, a very sound principle uh, where you only bump up one level of distance in bureaucracy if you absolutely have to. Uh, and the checks and balances are the best, you know, this is Churchill, democracy is the, the worst form of government except for all the others. Checks and balances are terrible. In the United States, they prevent action of any kind often, but they at least constrain power. And on a global level, my suggestion is that if you have lots of different kinds of networks of different kinds of officials, including judges, including legislators, including regulators, you have some checks and balances. They can check each other. Uh, you know, a network of legislators can check a network of regulators. It's it's hard because it really requires um, institutions that are, are very imperfect, but I think you can imagine constructing a kind of governance system 
that has some authority but has these these principles uh, within it. Yeah, we come to the one concept in the book which is the only one to possibly frighten me from your book, which was you talk about uh, the State Department budget increasingly falling, and at the same time the amount of money being spent on regulators in the states rising almost proportionally. And indeed, you go further away from the book to say that regulators are now the new international diplomats. <laughs> Why does that worry me? <laughs> well, it worries lots of people because we think, oh, goodness, you know, the last thing we want are our regulators, you know, the people who make all these rules that we have to follow. They are becoming the global governance. But, but here's another way to look at it. Uh, you know, I still think, having now worked in the State Department, we do need our diplomats. Our diplomats are very important, and there are certain situations, particularly with countries we don't get along with at all, where diplomats are essential because, uh, you know, you still need people who know how to deal with another country who is fundamentally an enemy, but but you have to to work with them. But on the other hand, think about the regulation of the global economy. Now, we need better regulation of the global economy. But if it were not for the network of central bankers and finance ministers and insurance supervisors and accounting supervisors, sort of gray office people who, if it weren't for those networks, we'd be in far worse shape, right? They're the ones who are trying to make sure that banks don't go belly up globally. They're the ones who are trying to coordinate national economic policy so that we can at least push in the same direction at times of crisis. They're the ones who are making sure our accounting standards and our insurance standards are harmonized across borders so that when you engage in trade around the world, you're not, uh, you know, in in a no man's land in terms of insurance or accounting. So what I was pointing out was rather than having, you know, the global central bank or the global securities regulator or the global insurance regulator, these networks of national officials are performing many of those functions. And the good thing about that is there's a British regulator whom you still have, you know, Parliament has some say over, and there's an American regulator who Congress has some say over. So, again, it's a second-best system, but given that the first-best is unacceptable for many reasons, um, first best in terms of authority, but dangerous in terms of, of power, this is, I think, the n- next best alternative. And will that mechanism be key to what you talk about in terms of establishing disaggregated sovereignty, or is there something else that's going to achieve that? Well, so disaggregated sovereignty is not actually a goal so much as a fact. In right. other words, what I'm saying is, even though we're not aware of it, we think of sovereignty as this thing that you know the United Kingdom possesses. It's a sovereign nation. And what that really means is it gets a seat at the United Nations. It gets a seat at any international table. It has the power to bind the people of the United Kingdom to treaties, etc., so, and that's still there, but what I'm pointing out is, yes, but who exercises sovereignty over the British economy? Well, it's not just the British government. The interconnections between the British economy and the American economy and the Chinese economy are, are enormous. And actually what's happened is pieces of the power to govern have disaggregated. They've gone into these networks of national regulators. So my point was... We need to think about that and think about what that means and then think, what rules do we need? So to give you a concrete example, if suddenly now you know that the Chancellor of the Exchequer is 
working with the chairman of the Federal Reserve and his EU equivalent and his, his Chinese equivalent, and each of them is exercising a little piece of sovereignty over the global economy, well, should Parliament be holding hearings about that? Should, should you know, voters know about this? What, what kinds of accountability do we need once a government is not one entity you know, sitting at an international table, but rather it's disaggregated into all these networks. So, and this disaggregation to networks, you say, is also reflected quite significantly in the legal connections across the world. You talk Indeed. about this concept of persuasive authority, and you cite, for instance, a, a South African court drawing on the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights on their decision to end capital punishment in South Africa, you said it's a good example. But that you then go on to suggest that perhaps the battle hasn't been quite so won in the States, that American courts are, are less keen on this concept of persuasive authority. Have things again changed since the book came out? Oh, it's interesting. <laughs> so so the, the world's judiciary has, does become steadily more and more integrated. And the idea of persuasive authority is, you know, if if an Indian court or a South African court or a Canadian court or a British court hands down an opinion on something like capital punishment or it could be reproductive rights or whatever, another court can look at that and say, well, you know, that's very good reasoning. It can't say we're bound as a matter of law, but it can say that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, we, we will take from that what we can, what is consistent with our law. In the United States, that is a controversial proposition because... Uh, it looks like we're borrowing foreign ideas. Now, there's a great irony there because, in fact, many courts around the world borrowed from the U.S. Supreme Court forever, and the U.S. Supreme Court, in turn, borrowed from British legal authorities. Uh, so, uh, you know, in some sense, that's natural. Uh, and the U.S., I think, is harming its own persuasive authority by refusing to look to other other uh, courts. But what's happened is the divide on the Supreme Court continues and intensifies. So essentially there are five judge justices who believe it is all right to look to foreign law under certain circumstances. Again, not as law, but just as persuasive authority. And four who feel very strongly that it is a very bad idea. Uh, and those uh, justices split differently in different cases. But I think over time, you know, it's like putting your thumb in the dike. You really can't hold back the ocean of interconnected ideas and practices and education that will inform global judiciaries. The last question on, on that book, uh, in fact, both the books in a way, is, of course, new world orders and global governance. I think people, of course, most think about is the UN. Yeah. Um, yet, in the first book we discussed the idea that as America, you say, well, the UN needs reformed in some non-specific way. And then in New World Order, you you talk about some things the UN has done in terms of what you refer to as a global compact. But I sense uh, a retinence that you think perhaps that hasn't worked or hasn't been demonstrated to work. Or What was your feeling of the UN today? Do you think it has a role in global governance? How do you think global, the global compact's gone? Well, the global compact... Um has been only moderately successful. I think it was an idea where, where corporations would sign on to a voluntary code of conduct. On the other hand, the UN Corporate Code of Human Rights has been very successful. And 
I think the UN overall is indispensable. I cannot imagine what we would do if we didn't have it. When it was created, we had fewer than 60 countries in the world, and it was already hard to get countries together. Now we have almost 200. And if you didn't have one place that everybody actually sent an ambassador to, and as cumbersome as it is, imagine what it would be like having to run around 200 capitals Mm. every time you wanted to get something done. So uh, it's more... Uh, important than ever in many ways. Uh, President Obama has gone to the UN for every major decision, whether that's sanctions against Iran or against North Korea or intervention in Libya. Uh, And I think the United States has realized that leading through the United Nations is far more effective than leading against it. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean it's always the last word on everything. It's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a complicated system, but I think it it is very important on security matters. For other issues, it's too big and yeah. too cumbersome. And I think we are moving increasingly toward regional governance. So European Union, for all its flaws, is the most effective regional entity in the world. It is capable of negotiating trade agreements. It is capable of you know, of, of, of combating climate change on a European-wide level. The African Union is getting stronger. The uh, Organization of American States uh, is gradually reforming. We're creating things like the East Asia Summit, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the Arab League. These entities are all different stages of development we're going to have to strengthen them, and they will then be partners with the United Nations. But you really, you know, the UN can't fix Hmm. problems over the long term in Africa or Central Asia or Latin America or or Central Europe. It needs the partnership of a strong regional organization. So I I see those organizations growing uh, over the next couple of decades. And to be fair to the U.S. approach to the UN, you, you do reference the fact that the UN was born uh, out of both the left and the right coming together in the States, in particular, you cite Vandenberg yes. as being extreme yes. right, yes. suddenly coming out right. from the vault fast and saying the UN's the thing we should do. We need a little more of that today, We, although we, we have some. It's, there are some uh, some conservative politicians who are, are, are um, do see a role for the United Nations, although some of that bipartisanship is gone. The other thing I should have said is the UN does have to be reformed. You cannot keep countries like India or South Africa or Brazil off the Security Council. You cannot have a Security Council that has not a single Muslim-majority country on it. Uh, You know, when over a billion uh, Muslims uh, are in the world. So either the UN is going to reform or these regional organizations are going to start to replace it. And I think when that starts to happen, we may find the will for reform. Uh, And finally... uh have you anything you'd want to say to your fellow graduates today who graduated alongside you in the in the Butterworth Hall today? Um, well, they, I think they're they're graduating at at an extraordinary time of change. Every generation thinks that, but the impact, uh, the combined impact of information technology and soon biotechnology will effectively create the equivalent of a new industrial revolution. So they. They are going to have to keep learning. 
over the course of their lifetimes. The good news is they will have more opportunities to continue learning than ever before, either through online at programs here at Warwick uh, or at other universities around the world. So I think my advice would be keep learning. Thank you very much, Professor Soldier. You're welcome. My pleasure.